This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T. 6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. Repentance, What Saith the Scriptures by A. W. Pink, as read by Samantha Elosice. Introduction One of the divinely predicted characteristics of the perilous times in which we are now living is that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 The deeper reference of these words is to spiritual seducers and deceivers. Men with captivating personalities, men who occupy a prominent place in Christendom, men with an apparently deep reverence for holy writ, are beguiling souls with fatal error. Not only are evolutionists, higher critics, and modernists deluding multitudes of our young people with their sugar-coated lies, but some who pose as the champions of orthodoxy and boast of their ability to, quote, rightly divide the word of truth, end of quote, are poisoning the minds of many to their eternal destruction. Such a charge as we have just made is indeed a serious one, and one which is not to be readily received without proof, but proof is easily furnished. The Word of God teaches plainly that in this dispensation, equally with preceding ones, God requires a deep and sincere repentance before He pardons any sinner. Repentance is absolutely necessary to salvation, just as necessary as is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke 13.3 Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life, Acts 11.18 For godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 It is impossible to frame language more explicit than that. Therefore, in view of these verses and others yet to be quoted, we cannot but sorrowfully regard those who are now affirming that repentance is not, in this dispensation, essential unto salvation, as being deceivers of souls, blind leaders of the blind. A careful comparison of the prominent place which is given to repentance in the New Testament which, with the very small place it has in present-day teaching, even in so-called orthodox pulpits, brings to light one of the most significant and solemn signs of the times. Some of the most prominent of those pleased to style themselves teachers of dispensational truth insist that repentance belongs to a past period, being altogether Jewish, 
and and to deny in toto that in this age God God demands repentance from the sinner before he can be saved, thus blankly repudiating Acts 17.30, quote, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. End of quote. When it is borne in mind that these men are most diligent students of Scripture, we can but sorrowfully see them in the fulfillment of these of those words, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Timothy three verse seven. Others, in their recoil from salvation by reformation, have failed to duly preserve the balance of truth and give proper place to such scriptures as he that covereth his sins shall not prosper but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy proverbs 28:13 and let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the lord and he will have mercy upon him isaiah 55:7 it is not that there is anything meritorious in a sinner's compliance with this righteous demand of god but that the claims of the Holy One must be pressed on those who have transgressed against Him. Yet that is just the thing the haughty rebel desires to hear about least of all, and the sad thing is that so many are now, wittingly or unwittingly, withholding that which is unpalatable to men, but which is honoring to God. How widespread this withholding is may be quickly discovered by an examination of present-day tracts purporting to explain how a sinner may be saved in most of them not a word is said about repentance even where it is held that repentance is necessary before a sinner can be saved only too often the most shallow and superficial views are entertained of what repentance really is in many circles it is assumed that if a person sheds tears or appears to be broken hearted on account of the evil course he has followed This is clear proof that a saving work of divine grace has begun in that person's heart. But this by no means follows. The prickings of an uneasy conscience are not the same as the conviction of sin which is produced by the Holy Spirit. Esau wept, and wept bitterly, yet he was not regenerated. Felix trembled under the preaching of Paul, but there is no hint in Scripture that he has gone to heaven. Multitudes are deceived on this very point, and there is very little in present-day ministry which is calculated to, de- uh, to undeceive them. Every one of us who values, his eternal, uh, who values his soul and is concerned about his eternal destiny will do well to carefully examine his repentance in the light of Scripture and ascertain whether it be of man or from God, natural or supernatural. The first occurrence of the word repent furnishes the key to its meaning and scope. In Genesis 6.6 6, we read, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. The language is figurative, for he who is infinite in wisdom and immutable in counsel never changes his mind. This is plain from, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Numbers 23.19 And the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. 1 Samuel 15.29 And again, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17 Thus, in the light of these definite statements, we are compelled to conclude that in Genesis 6.6 and similar passages, the Almighty condescends to accommodate himself to our mode of speaking 
and express himself after a human manner, as he does in Psalm 78.65, Psalm 87.6, Isaiah 59.16, and other places. Now by carefully noting the setting of this word in Genesis 6.6, and attentively observing what follows, we, can, we discover first that the occasion of repentance is sin, for in Genesis 6.5 we read that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Thus repentance is a realization of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Second, that the nature of repentance consists in a change of mind. A new decision is formed in view of the deplorable conditions existing. It repented the Lord that he had made man. Third, that genuine repentance is accompanied by a real sorrow for sin, for that which necessitated the change of mind, and it grieved him at his heart. See also 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Fourth, that the fruit or consequence of repentance appears in a determination to undo, that is, forsake and rectify as far as possible, that which is sorrowed over. And the Lord said, I will destroy man. Verse 7. All of these elements are found in a repentance which has been produced in the heart by the gracious and supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit. Let us now consider, first, its necessity. This is discovered by a contemplation of the law, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3 verse 20, where there is no expounding and enforcing of the holy law of God, there can be no true, deep-saving knowledge of sin. As the Apostle Paul so plainly affirms, I had not known sin but by the law. Romans 7.7 7. The exceeding sinfulness of sin, Romans 7.13, is only exposed when the Spirit turns the light of God's law upon our conscience and heart. But this is preeminently an age of lawlessness, and that in every respect. And it cannot be otherwise where the law of God is flouted, where thousands of preachers are declaring that the law has no place in this dispensation of grace, we cannot expect people to have much respect for human law. God has caused the people to reap that which they have sown. Having sown the wind, they are now reaping the whirlwind. Bolshevism and anarchy are the inevitable rebound from having slighted and rejected the Ten Commandments. Practical godliness consists in conformity of heart and life to the law of God and in a sincere compliance with the gospel of Christ. But it is only as we rightly understand both the law and the gospel that we can discern wherein a conformity to the one and a compliance with the other really consists. Now the requirements of the law are summed up in that word, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Matthew 22.37. Observe carefully the three things here specified. First, the duty required, namely love to God. Second, the ground or reason for this, namely because he is the Lord our God. Third, the measure or extent of this duty, namely to love him with all the heart. Nothing other than this, Nothing less than this will ever meet the righteous claims of God upon us. Now that which is implied in and required unto a real love to God, 
is first a true knowledge of him. If our apprehensions of God are wrong, if they are not formed by scripture, then it is obvious we have but a false image of him, framed by our own fancy. By a true knowledge of God, John 17.3 and 1 John 5.20, we mean far more than a correct theoretical notion of his perfections. There must be a heartfelt realization of his personal loveliness, his ineffable glory. And where that truth truly exists, there will be a delighting of ourselves in him, Psalm 37.4, and a desire and determination to please him. As self-love naturally causes us to magnify self and seek to promote our own interests, so a true love to God causes us to put him first and seek his interests. In repentance, sin is the thing to be repented of, and sin is a transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. And the first and chief thing required by the law is supreme love to God. Therefore, the lack of supreme love to God the heart's disaffection for his character and rebellion against him, Romans 8.7, is our great wickedness which we have to repent of. But it will never be in our hearts to repent unless we truly see our blame. And we can never truly see our blame until we perceive that which chiefly renders us to blame. It is the excellency of God, the infinite perfections of his glorious being, which renders him worthy of and entitled to our supreme love and fullest obedience, and this is it, and this it is, which chiefly renders us to blame for not having loved and served him. Not to love so lovable an object as the God of love is the crime of crimes. The evil of sin. What is sin? Sin is saying, I renounce the God who made me. I disallow his right to govern me. I care not what he says to me, what commandments he has given, nor how he expostulates. I prefer self-indulgence to his approval. I am indifferent to all he has done to and for me. His blessings and gifts move me not. I am going to be Lord of myself. Sin is rebellion against the majesty of heaven. It is to treat the Almighty with contempt. Oh, how vastly different a thing is sin from what the world supposes. How insensible are the unregenerate to the glory of God and that which is due unto him from us. The natural man supposes that the great evil of sin consists in its being so injurious to us. For a creature which is absolutely dependent to assume an attitude of haughty independence is the sin of sins. To despise one who is infinitely glorious and infinitely worthy of honor, love and obedience is an awful abomination. To be more concerned about pleasing fellow rebels than to seek the favor of God is turpitude of the blackest dye. O oh, reader, if you have never seen the great evil of sin, then you are a stranger to God and blind to his surpassing loveliness. You are under the blinding power of sin. Weigh well what is now being presented if you value your soul, dear friend. The deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3.13, may hitherto have closed your eyes to the terrible condition you are in. If so, are you now willing to be undeceived? Are you willing to really see yourself? Then make no mistake upon this point. Never was any sinner pardoned while he was impenitent. And never was a soul truly penitent while insensible of the great evil of sin. And never did a sinner perceive the great evil of sin till he became acquainted with the infinitely great and glorious God 
against whom he has sinned. You may indeed have been sorry for sin on other accounts, as exposing you to shame before men, as having injured your reputation, or because it has brought down God's chastening hand upon your body or temporal affairs. But if you have never seen the great evil of sin as it is against that God who is infinitely glorious in himself, then your repentance was not genuine, and God has not pardoned you. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Psalm 51, verse 4 A sense of the great evil of sin is essential to true repentance. We cannot be suitably affected toward things unless we see them as they are. No matter how lovely a thing or person may be, if their excellency be not perceived, the heart is untouched. Even the infinite glory of God will not excite our esteem and love if we have no sense of it. So, on the other hand, let sin be never so evil, yet if this be not realized, we are not suitably affected toward it. Though it deserves to be hated with perfect hatred, and though there be every reason why we should be horrified on account of it, and abase ourselves before God, mourning it in bitterness of heart, fearing it, watching against it as the greatest of all evils, yet we shall never do so until we see sin in its real hideousness. Thus a deep sense of the infinite evil of sin is plainly essential to repentance. Yea, it is from this that repentance immediately springs. The evil of sin arises from our obligations to do otherwise, namely, our being under obligation to love and serve him who is infinitely glorious. But unless I clearly see this, there will not be, there cannot be, any deep repentance. The language of every sinner's heart is, I care not what God requires, I am going to have my own way. I care not what be God's claim upon me, I refuse to submit unto his authority. I care not what he has threatened to do unto those that defy him, I will not be intimidated. His eyes may be upon me, but I am not going to be restrained thereby. I care not what he loves and what he hates, I shall please myself. But when the Holy Spirit enlightens and convicts a soul, his language is, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. What repentance is? Thus, true repentance issues from a realization in the heart, wrought therein by the Holy Spirit of the sinfulness of sin, of the awfulness of ignoring the claims of God, and defying his authority. It is therefore a holy horror and hatred of sin, a deep sorrow for it, an acknowledgement of it before God, and a complete heart forsaking of it. Not until this is done will God pardon us. Whoever will take the trouble to search through the scriptures on this point will find that it is plainly and uniformly taught by Moses and the prophets, by Christ and his apostles. Begin with what God demanded on the Day of Atonement. Whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in the same day, so far from the sacrifice removing his sins, he shall be cut off from his people. Leviticus 23.29 Weigh well the teaching of these verses. If they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they were carried captives, and repent, and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, 
and return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray unto thee, then hear thou their prayer and their supplication, and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee. 1 Kings 8, 47-50 No change in dispensation has wrought any change in the character of the thrice holy God. His claims are ever the same. For the teachings of the prophets, see Psalm 32, verse 3 through 5, Proverbs 28:13, Jeremiah 4:4, 4, 4, Ezekiel 18, verse 30 to 32, Hosea 5:15, Joel 2, verse 12 to 18. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, preached, saying, "Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Matthew 3:2. This was as though he said, "Such is the nature of the Messiah's kingdom." So holy is it that no impenitent sinner, while such, can be a member of it and share its blessings. The promised one is on the eve of making his appearance, therefore repent ye, and thus be prepared to receive him. Thus did John preach, and many did he turn to the Lord their God. Luke 1, verse 16 and 17. The Lord Jesus taught and constantly pressed the same truth. His call was, Repent ye and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15 The gospel cannot be savingly believed until there is genuine repentance. As the ground must be plowed before it is capable of receiving the seed, so the heart must be melted ere it will come, ere it will welcome the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore did he declare, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5.4 and announced that he had been sent to heal the brokenhearted, Luke 4.18. He came here to call sinners to repentance, Luke 5.32, and insisted that, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish, Luke 13, verse 3 and 5. He illustrated this truth at length in the parable of the prodigal son, who came to himself, repented, left the far country, and returned to the father, and so obtained his forgiveness. Luke 15, verse 17 to 20. When risen from the dead, Christ commissioned his servants that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Luke 24:47, And Acts 5:31 tells us that he has been exalted on high to communicate these blessings in the same order, namely to give repentance to the spiritual Israel and forgiveness of sins. Accordingly, we find the apostles who were filled with the Holy Spirit thus carrying out his command. On the day of Pentecost, when many were pricked in their hearts and asked, What shall we do? Peter did not say, Do nothing but rest upon the finished work of Christ. Instead, he said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 2.38 Again in Acts 3.19 we find him saying, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When Paul was converted and sent to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, it was to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins. Acts 26.18 Hence we find he went everywhere and preached to men that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Acts 26.20 Testifying to both Jews and also to the Greeks, 
Repentance Toward God and Faith Toward Our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20.21 As to those who shut their eyes, stopped their ears, hardened their hearts, and were given up to destruction in the days of the prophets, Isaiah 6.10, of Christ, Matthew 13.15, and of the apostles, Acts 28.27, their sentence ran thus, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and be converted, and I should heal them, which, compared with Mark 4.12, signifies, and their sins should be forgiven in them. Against these clear and consistent testimonies of Holy Writ, certain men have insisted that the divine call to repentance was never made to any except those who were in a covenant relationship with God. But as we have shown, Acts 17.30 and 26.20 clearly expose this error. Some have pointed out that the word repent is not found once in all John's Gospel, and in view of 20 verse 31 have reasoned that it is not necessary unto salvation. But, God, but John's Gospel is plainly addressed to those who are saved. See John 1 verse 16. It is that gospel which sets forth the Son in relation to the sons of God. John 20.31 obviously means that this gospel is written to strengthen the faith of believers. As 1 John 5.13, addressed to those who already knew they were saved, see chapter 2 verse 3, and others, signifies the purpose of that epistle was to deepen assurance. Others have drawn a false inference from the very infrequent mention of repentance in the epistles, but they also are addressed to the saints. Yet 2 Corinthians 7.10, 2 Timothy 2.25, 2 Peter 3.9 manifestly confirm the fact that repentance is required throughout this dispensation. There is no new thing under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1.9, nor is the present-day denial of the necessity of repentance for salvation any 20th century novelty. In proof of this statement, we could fill page after page with quotations from antinomians and others who lived long before dispensational truth was first heard of. No, it is an old device of Satan's, yet under a new dress. But woe unto those who accept his lie. God must cease to exist before he will lower his claims and cease demanding repentance from all who have rebelled against him. Make no mistake upon this point, dear reader. It is to turn or burn. Turn from your course of self-will and self-pleasing. Turn in brokenheartedness unto God, seeking his mercy in Christ. Turn with full purpose to please and serve him, or be tormented day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire. Let us consider, secondly, its nature. Except ye, ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke 13.3 In view of these solemn words, it is tremendously important that each of us should seek and obtain from God the repentance which he requires, not resting content with anything short of this. Hence, there needs to be the most diligent and prayerful examination as to the character of our repentance. Multitudes are deceived thereon. Many are perplexed by the conflicting teaching of men on the subject. But instead of that discouraging, it should stir up to a more earnest searching of the scriptures. Before turning to the positive side of this branch of our theme, 
let us first point out some of the features of a non-saving repentance. First, trembling beneath the preaching of God's word is not repentance. True, there are thousands of people who have listened unmoved to the most awe-inspiring sermons and even descriptions of the torments of the damned which have struck no terror to their hearts. Yet on the other hand, many who were deeply stirred filled with alarm and moved to tears are now in hell. I have seen the faces of strong men pale under a searching message, yet next day all its effects had left them. Felix trembled in Acts 24.25 under the preaching of Paul. Second, being almost persuaded is not repentance. Agrippa in Acts 26.28 is a case in point. A person may give full assent to the messages of God's servants, admire the gospel, yea, receive the word with joy, and after all be only a stony ground hearer. Matthew 13, verse 20 and 21. Not only so, he may be conscious of his evil doing and acknowledge the same. Pharaoh owned in Exodus 10:16, I have sinned against the Lord your God. A man may realize that he ought to yield himself to the claims of God and become a Christian, yet never be more than almost persuaded. Third, humbling ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God is not repentance. People may be deeply moved, weep, go home and determine to reform their lives, and yet return to their sins. A solemn example of this is found in Ahab. That wicked king of Israel coveted Naboth's vineyard, plotting to, plotted to secure it, and gained his end by causing him to be murdered. Then the servant of God met him and said, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And we are told that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and went softly. 1 Kings 21, verse 27 through 29. Yet in the very next chapter we find him again rebelling against God and that he was cut off by divine judgment. Ah, my reader, you may have humbled yourself before God for a time and yet remain the slave of your lusts. You may be afraid of hell and yet not of sinning. If hell were extinguished, so would be the repentance of many church members. O mistake not fear of the wrath to come for a holy hatred and horror of sin. Fourthly, confessing sins is not repentance. Thousands have gone forward to the altar or mourner's bench and have told God what vile creatures they were, enumerating a long list of transgressions, but without any deep realization of the unspeakable awfulness of their sins or a spark of holy hatred of them. The sequel has shown this, for they now ignore God's commandments as much as they did before. O oh, my reader, if you do not, in the strength of God, resist sin, if you do not turn from it, then your fancied rep repentance is only whitewash, paint which decorates, but not the grace which transforms into gold. Fifth, you may even do works meet for repentance and yet remain impenitent. A sinner may be convinced of the evil of his ways, turn from them, and go so far as to make restitution for the harm which he has wrought, and yet perish notwithstanding. A clear proof of this is furnished in the New Testament. Judas confessed his sins to the priests and returned their money in Matthew 27, verse 3 to 5. And then he went out from the presence of these evil men. Was he saved? No, he went and hanged himself. Oh, how this ought to make each of us tremble and search our hearts.
The Greek word metanoio, which occurs most frequently as the word rendered repent, signifies a change of mind. Matthew 21.29 both illustrates and confirms that definition. Yet let it be said very emphatically that saving repentance means far more than a mere change of opinions. It is a changed mind which leads to action. Now this changed mind is not brought about by any intellectual process, but is the result of the understanding being wrought upon by the conscience, and that, as the conscience has been supernaturally ploughed up by the Holy Spirit. In consequence of this, there is a judging or condemning of self, a taking sides with God against myself. Fallen man is not on trial, but is a criminal already under sentence. John 3.18 There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 10 through 12. That is God's indictment against each of us. No pleading will avail, no excuses will be accepted. The present issue between God and the sinner is, will man bow to or endorse with his heart God's righteous verdict? It is just here that the gospel meets us. It comes to us as those who are already lost, as those who are ungodly, without strength, at enmity against God. When the gospel first comes to the sinner, it finds him in a state of apostasy from God, both as sovereign ruler and our supreme good, neither obeying and glorifying him, nor enjoying and finding satisfaction in him. Hence the demand for repentance toward God before faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20.21 20, True repentance towards God removes this disaffection of our minds and hearts towards him under both these characters. In in saving repentance, the whole soul turns to him and says, I have been a disloyal and rebellious creature. I have scorned thy high authority and most rightful law. I will no longer live thus. I now desire and determine with all my might to serve and obey thee as my only Lord. I subject myself unto thee to submit to thy will. Nor is the above all that a truly penitent soul says to God. He goes on, Hitherto have I been a miserable and forlorn creature, destitute of anything which could satisfy or make me truly happy. My heart has been set upon a vain world which could not meet my real needs. It has flattered and mocked me often, but never contented me. It has pierced me through with many sorrows. I forsook the fountain of living waters and turn to broken cisterns which held none. I own and bewail my folly. I unsparingly condemn myself for my madness. I now betake myself to thee as my present and everlasting portion. The gospel proclaims the amazing grace of God, which is the guilty and condemned sinner's only hope. Yet that grace will never be really welcomed until the sinner truly bows beneath God's sentence against him. This is why both repentance and faith are demanded of us. The two must never be separated. When our Lord was speaking to the chief priests and elders about the rejection of John's message, the charge preferred against them was, Ye repented not afterward, that ye might believe in him. Matthew 21, verse 32. 
Repentance is the heart's acknowledgement of the justice of God's sentence of condemnation. Faith is the heart's glad acceptance of the grace and mercy which are extended to us through Christ. Repentance is not simply the turning over of a new leaf and vowing that I will mend my ways. Rather, is it a setting to my seal that God is true when he declares I am without strength, that in myself my case is hopeless, that I am no more capable of doing better than I am of creating a world. Not until this is believed on the authority of God's word shall I really turn to Christ and welcome him, not as a helper, but as a savior. Repentance is more than conviction of sin or terror of the wrath to come. This is clear from Acts 2, verse 37 and 38. Under Peter's searching message, the Jews were made to realize their awful, awful guilt before God. They were made conscious of the awful fact that they had murdered the Prince of Life and so were in terrible fear of being cast into hell. Nevertheless, though already pricked in their hearts, when they cried out, What shall we do? Peter said, Repent. To a superficial mind, such a demand might appear needless, yet was it a seasonable counsel. Their being pricked in their heart was legal terror, whereas saving repentance is an evangelical judging of self, mourning over sin out of a sense of God's grace and goodness. A careful and prayerful pondering of Acts 2, verse 37 and 38 should correct more than one error which is now current in various circles. When the hearers of Peter were affrighted by their awful crime and fearful of the wrath to to come, pricked in their heart as though a sword had been run through their vitals, they cried out in anguish, What shall we do? The apostles did not say, Be passive, there is nothing you can do thus encouraging the the fatal inertia of hyper-Calvinists. Nor did he say, Believe your sins are blotted out, which is the counsel of many physicians of no value in our day. No, his reply was far otherwise, in substance amounting to this, Take all the blame which belongs to you, own the whole truth unto God, do not gloss over, but confess your awful wickedness, Let your uncircumcised hearts be truly humbled before him, and then look by faith to the free grace of God through the blood of Christ for pardon, and in token that all your dependence is on his mediation and merits, be baptized in his name, and that shall be to you an eternal sign of the remission of your sins. It is manifest from the nature of the case that he who hath his eyes opened to see the glory of the divine nature the beauty of the divine law, the infinite evil of sin, the need of an infinite atonement, and so to see his need of Christ, and at the same time use God as the supreme all-sufficient good, ready to receive every sinner that returns to him through Christ. It is manifest, I say, that everyone who is thus taught of God will repent and turn to God as his sovereign Lord and supreme good, and return through Jesus Christ, who is the way to the Father, and the only way in the view of one thus divinely enlightened. For in the clearer light the glory of the divine nature and law is seen, in exact proportion will be the sense of the infinite evil of sin, and the need of Christ's infinite atonement and perfect righteousness. And so repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ will be naturally implied in each other. He who repents in view 
of the glory of God, the glory of the law, and of the atonement, will in his repentance look only to a free grace through Jesus Christ for mercy, in a view of the glory of God, law, atonement, and will in doing so take the whole blame of his disaffection to the divine character as exhibited in the law and on the cross of Christ to himself, judging and condemning himself, and in the very act of faith repent and be converted. When therefore it is said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, Acts 16.31, the same, inclusive, thing is meant as when it is said, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, Acts 3.19. For the apostolic faith implies repentance and sometimes both together, but the same thing is always intended, for in the view of the apostles, repentance and faith were mutually applied, implied in each other. So says J. Bellamy, 1750. A full and formal definition of repentance. Giving a more full and formal definition of repentance, we would say, repentance is a supernatural and inward revelation from God giving a deep consciousness of what I am in his sight, which causes me to loathe and condemn myself, resulting in a bitter sorrow for sin, a holy horror and hatred for sin, a turning away from or forsaking of sin. It is the discovery of God's high and righteous claims upon me and of my lifelong failure to meet those claims. It is the recognition of the holiness and goodness of his law, and my defiant insubordination thereto. It is the perception that God has the right to rule and govern me, and of my refusal to submit unto him. It is the apprehension that he has dealt in goodness and kindness with me, and that I have evilly repaid him by having no concern for his honor and glory. It is the realization of his gracious patience with me, and how that instead of this melting my heart, and causing me to yield loving obedience to him, I have abused his forbearance by continuing a course of self-will. Evangelical repentance is a heart apprehension of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It is the recognition of the chief thing wherein I am blameworthy, namely, in having so miserably failed to render unto God that which is his rightful due. As the Holy Spirit sets before me the loveliness of the divine character, as I am enabled to discern the exalted excellency of God, then I begin to perceive that to which he is justly entitled, namely the homage of my heart, the unrestricted love of my soul, the complete surrender of my whole being to him. As I perceive that, from the moment I drew my first breath, God has sought only my good, that, that the one who gave me being has constantly ministered to my every creature need, and then that the least I can do in return is to acknowledge his abounding mercies by doing that which is pleasing in his sight, I am now overwhelmed with anguish and horror as I realize I have treated him more vilely than my worst enemy. Oftentimes examples is better than the most accurate definition. The New Testament furnishes quite a number of concrete instances even where the term itself is not found. When the publican stood afar off and would not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner, Luke 18.13, 
we behold repentance in action. He recognized that awful moral distance which sin had taken him from God. He was deeply conscious of his utter unworthiness to gaze upon the Holy One. He unsparingly judged himself. He realized that his only hope lay in the sovereign mercy of God. So too the thief on the cross. In his words to his hardened companion, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we receive the due reward of our deeds. Luke 23, verse 40 and 41. There was no self-examination, but ready owning of his, own, of his sinnership and his desert to be punished. Mark carefully the expressions of penitence used by David in Psalm 51. He talks not of his failures, mistakes, or infirmities, but instead of my transgressions, verse 1, my sin, verse 2, his evil, verse 4, my iniquity, verse 9, and expressly mentions the worst feature of his crime, namely his blood guiltiness, in verse 14. True repentance abhors gentle names for sin, nor does it seek to cloak wickedness, that which while being tempted is thought of as no great offense when later is truly repented of is acknowledged to be heinous. Sin before its commission often appears unto the mind as a very small evil, but when grace acts in a way of repentance for it, then the false glamour disappears and it is viewed in its dreadful malignity and loathed accordingly. The Accompaniment of True Repentance True repentance is always accompanied by a deep longing and a sincere determination to forsake that course which is displeasing to God. With what honesty could any man seek God's pardon while he continued to defy him and would not part with that which he forbids? Would any king pardon a traitor, though he seemed never so humble, if he saw that he would be a traitor still? True, God is infinitely more merciful than any human king, yet in the very passage where he first formally proclaimed his mercy, he at once added that will by no means clear the guilty, Exodus 34, verse 5 through 7, that is, guilty-hearted, those with false and disloyal hearts toward himself, who would not be subject to him in all things, and decline to have their every thought brought into captivity to obedience unto him. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 What has just been said needs to be strongly emphasized in this day of lawlessness when on every side the very grace of God is being turned into lasciviousness. Jude 4 Many are the scriptures which set forth truth that there must be a forsaking of sin before God will pardon offenders. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Psalm 130 verse 4 were God to grant pardon unto those in whom there was no change of heart to fear and obey him, then there would be mercy with him that he might be insulted and dishonored still further. God's mercy is never exercised at the expense of his holiness. God never displays one of his attributes so as to dishonor another. To pity a thief while continuing a thief would be folly, would be folly not wisdom. Well did the Puritan Thomas Goodwin say, quote, Resolve either to leave every known sin and to submit to every other to every known duty, or else never look to find mercy and favor with God. End of quote. 
Of old it was announced that should any bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart, to add drunkenness to thirst, that is, one sin to another, the Lord will not spare him. Deuteronomy 29, verse 19 and 20. So, on the other hand, it was declared, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear, heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14 Also Second Chronicles 6 verse 26 And the principles of God's judgment have not changed. The death of Christ has not caused God to lower his standard. How unspeakably horrid and dreadful that anyone should suppose that it has. No, what God demanded of old, he demands now. Thus repentance is the negative side of conversion. Conversion is a wholehearted turning unto God, but there cannot be a turning unto without a turning from. Sin must be forsaken ere we can draw nigh unto the Holy One. As it is written, Ye turn to God from idols to serve, that is, live for, the living and true God. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 Thus repentance is the sinner making his peace with God. We are not unmindful of the fact that that expression is derided by many, yet it is a scriptural one. Let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me. Isaiah 27.5 It is blessedly true that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20 Yet it is equally true that no sinner ever enters into the saving good of Christ's blood until he makes his peace with God. In other words, till he throws down the weapons of his warfare and ceases fighting against God. The Lord Jesus himself plainly taught this in Luke 14. Let the reader carefully ponder verses 28 through 33, paying special attention to verse 32 and the so likewise of verse 33. Let us consider thirdly its implications. If God is an absolutely perfect and infinitely glorious and amiable being, infinitely worthy of supreme love and honor and universal obedience, and if our disaffection to the divine character and rebellion against God is altogether inexcusable and infinitely criminal, agreeable to the voice of the divine law and to the import of the cross of Christ, if God, the great governor of the universe, views things in this light and in this view calls unto us, from heaven to confess our sins, repent and turn unto him with all our hearts. If these things are so, and they are, then the meaning of God's word is certain. The ideas designed to be conveyed by them are determinate. To repent beyond dispute is to change our minds as to the divine character, to lay aside our prejudices, to open our eyes, and to begin to look upon God as he is an absolutely perfect and infinitely glorious and amiable being, infinitely worthy of supreme love and honor and of universal obedience, and in the light of this glory to begin to view our disaffection and rebellion as altogether inexcusable and infinitely criminal, and in this view cordially take all that, take all that blame to ourselves which God lays upon us and to be affected accordingly. Repentance is a saying, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when thou speakest, and clear when thou judgest. 
Should justice take place, no iniquity should be imputed unto thee. It would not be a blemish, but a beauty in thy character. And all heaven ought forever to love and adore thy glorious majesty, should I receive my just deserts and perish forever. But thou canst have mercy on whom thou wilt through Jesus Christ. To thine infinite grace and self-moving goodness through him I look. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Repentance stands then in opposition to all our former prejudices against the divine character and in opposition to that sin-extenuating, self-justifying, law-hating, God-blaspheming disposition which reigns in every impenitent soul. God is seen in his beauty. The divine law as a ministration of condemnation and death appears glorious, our disaffection and rebellion infinitely criminal. We justify God, approve His law, condemn ourselves, accept the punishment of our iniquity as worthy of God, and thus we confess, repent, and turn unto the Lord, looking only to free grace through Jesus Christ for pardon. Thus wrote J. Bellamy. Repentance then presupposes first a recognition and acknowledgement of God's claims upon us as our Creator, Governor, Provider, and Protector. Because God is who and what He is, namely the sum and source of all moral and spiritual excellency, and because of our relation to Him as creatures completely dependent upon Him, He is infinitely entitled to be loved with all our hearts, worshipped with fullest adoration, and served with joyous, perfect, and unremitting obedience. Until there is at least some measure of a clear and definite, we do not say full, recognition of this, the mind is yet under the blinding power of Satan, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and the heart is yet alienated from God, Ephesians 4, verse 18. Thus repentance necessarily presupposes regeneration, in which the favored soul is given an understanding that we may know him that is true, 1 John 5:20. The first evidence that this supernatural enlightenment has been given is the inward apprehension of God's excellency and supremacy, accompanied by a horrified consciousness of how dreadfully I have failed, all through my life, to give him his rightful place in my heart and life. In the second place, true repentance presupposes a hearty approval of God's law, and a full consent to its righteous requirements. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Romans 7 verse 12 it cannot be otherwise, for God is its author and nothing unholy, unjust, or evil could ever proceed from him. It therefore follows that such a law can never be altered or repealed. Those who affirm that the law of God has been abolished cast the greatest reproach upon all the perfections of the divine character. Upon his holiness, whereby he loves the right and hates the wrong, for a repeal of the law would re- suppose God released his creatures from doing right, and allowing them to do wrong. Upon his justice, whereby he gives to everyone his due, supposing him to rescind his righteous claims. Upon his immutability, supposing him to have been in one mind in the past, and another in the present. Upon his goodness, supposing him to have cancelled that which was designed for our highest well-being. God's law never repealed. If the reader will only make a determined effort to grasp the fact that the requirements of God's law 
are all summed up in Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, etc. Deuteronomy 6.5 He ought to have no difficulty in perceiving how frightful is the teaching that the law has been abrogated. Men must indeed have strange conceptions of divine grace and of the gospel if they suppose that God is now demanding something other or something less than the supreme place in man's affections and lives. Do they think for a moment that in Old Testament times God was asking for more love than was his due? Do they imagine that God does not now deserve as much love as he once did? Such a thought would be the most awful blasphemy. Or do they suppose that God has relinquished his rights and now freely allows his creatures to despise him? That he has made a concession to their evil hearts by lowering his standard? Is not the real source of opposition to God's law the enmity of the carnal mind? Romans 8.7 Perhaps the reader is inclined to reply, But did not Christ come here to fulfill the law for us, and did not his obedience free us from its demands? Pause, dear friend, and weigh well such a question, and endeavor to see what such a concept plainly involves. Surely you do not mean that the Son of God became incarnate for the purpose of procuring an abatement of the law, or to purchase lawless liberty for his rebellious subjects. What? Could he esteem his Father's interest and glory, the honor of his law and government, so lightly? Did he shed his present, his precious blood so as to persuade the great governor of the world to slacken the reins of government and grant an impious license to lawlessness? Perish the thought! Such a terrible concept would make the, the ineffably holy Christ the enemy of God and the friend of sin. So far from the Son coming to earth for such a purpose, he expressly declared, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18 If the verses which follow this quotation be carefully pondered, it will be seen that our Lord denounced the Pharisees because they had, by their own traditions and inventions, nullified God's law. While allowing that it condemned some external and gross acts of sin, they denied that it reprehended the first strivings of corruption in the heart. Therefore did Christ say, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 20 That the law of God was never to be repealed is taught again and again in Psalm 119. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Thy right, the righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Concerning thy testimonies I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Psalm 119, verses 142, 144, 152, 160 It was as though the psalmist said, The duty required by thy law is right and good, everlastingly right and good, and therefore, as governor of the world, Thou hast by law forever settled and established it as duty and law, never to be altered, but endure forever and ever, therefore it will endure. So far from Christ having died to disannul the law, 
so that now it wholly ceases to be a rule of life to believers, the great and declared design of his coming into the world was to recover his people unto a conformity thereto. See Titus 2, verse 11 through 13. Oh, how men love their corruptions and hate God's law, designed to have it cashiered so that they may live as they please, and yet escape the reproaches of their consciences here and eternal punishment hereafter. But God sitteth as king forever, Psalm 29, verse 10, and will assert the rights of his crown, maintain the honor of his majesty and the glory of his great name, and vindicate his injured law. He shall yet say, But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay before me. Luke 19.27 Herein we may see plainly the imperative and absolute need for regeneration if ever a fallen creature is to be won for God and a defiant rebel transformed into a loving subject. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it, cannot, for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be. Romans 8.7 Such is the terrible condition of every man and woman by nature. Nothing but the supernatural operation of the Almighty Spirit of God can produce a change of heart so that one can truthfully say, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Romans 7.22 But such teaching as this never has been and never will be popular in the world. The false prophets who carry peace, peace, will be loved, but they who press the high and unchanging claims of a righteous God will be hated and denounced as legalists, etc. Christ came into this world and died to answer all the demands of the law, and this not only that sinners might be saved, but that the law itself might be the more firmly established, that is, in the consciences and hearts of the redeemed. Therefore did the Apostle write, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Romans 3, verse 31. In this very epistle to the Romans, the Apostle, moved by the Holy Spirit, lays it down as a first principle that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1, verse 18. From this premise, he goes on to prove that now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Romans 3.19 but, but is it not clear as a sunbeam that if the law had been repealed at the cross, that none could stand guilty before God? For sin is not imputed when there is no law. Romans 5.13 If the law were repealed, what need was there for such a long train of argument to prove that by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight? Romans 3.20 In such a case it had been quite sufficient to say that a repealed law could neither justify nor condemn anybody. Instead, the apostle shows the law requires a patient continuance in well-doing and threatens tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil. Romans 2, verse 5 and 7 this shows that both Jews and Gentiles have sinned and therefore are condemned by the law, brought in guilty, and so the Apostle draws the inevitable conclusion that none can be cleared or justified by the law. Is it not obvious, then, 
that all this inspired reasoning supposes that the law is as much enforced as ever? Accordingly, he goes on to show Christ's death answered the demands of the law, and that not to make it void, but to establish it. Hence it is that we find the New Testament scriptures uniformly speak of those who have no saving interest in Christ's righteousness by faith, as being as much under the wrath of God and the curse of the law as though he had never died. As we have seen, Romans 1.18 declares, The wrath of God is, not was, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Again, in Colossians 3.10, we are told, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things where, which are written in the book of the law to do them. See also 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 9. But if the law had been repealed by the death of Christ, then all the world would have been freed from the curse, for a repealed law can neither bless the righteous nor curse the wicked. Therefore it is, we find that when Christless sinners are really awakened by the Holy Spirit to see and feel what a dreadful state they are in, they are always convinced that they are under the wrath of God and the curse of His law. See Romans 7, verse 9 through 11. And thereby they are made to understand their dire need of a Savior. But how could the Holy Spirit use the law if it had been repealed? And what of those who are never awakened and convicted by the Spirit and continue to despise the claims of God and flout His holy law? Ah, they shall find that after their hardness and impenitent heart they have but treasured up unto themselves wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2 verse 5 God the Father, as the governor of the world, gave the law. God the Son magnified it, Isaiah 42 verse 21, by expounding its purity, by obeying its precepts, by enduring its penalty. God the Holy Spirit honors the law by pressing upon the sinner its holy demands and using it as a schoolmaster to bring him to Christ, Galatians 3 verse 24. It is the special work of the third person of the Trinity to communicate unto each of the elect a sense of the infinite glory of God, the equity of his law, and the righteousness of his claims upon them. He begets within them a disposition which conforms them unto the discharge of their duties, and this he does by putting the law into their minds and writing it in their hearts. Hebrews 8 verse 10 In this way it becomes their very nature to love God with all their hearts, so that they might serve him without servile fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Luke 1 verse 74 and 75 Thus do both the Son and the Spirit honor the Father as supreme governor and join in the same design to discountenance sin, humble the sinner, magnify the law, and glorify grace. But this enforcing of the infinite glory of God of his governmental supremacy, of his holy law, of his righteous claims, of his demand for loving obedience and an an, an implicit compliance with all his demands is what is left out of every false religion in the world. And today there are perhaps as many false religions inside of Christendom as there are outside. Denials of the truth, 
perversions of the truth, half-truth, twisted and mangled, lawlessness proclaimed under the pretense of exalting grace. Pretense, we say, for God's grace never reigns at the expense of righteousness, but through righteousness. Romans 5.21 Divine grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2.12 It is the ministers of Satan, deceitful workers, 2 Corinthians 11.13, who are now by their one-sided teaching causing many to turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Jude 4 This is the end of tape 1. Please proceed to tape 2. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalogue.